This podcast is brought to you by Trivelo Coaching, where we help triathletes and cyclists like you train smarter to race faster. I'm your host, Jordan Donnelly, and on my left is former Australian Ironman champion and head coach of Trivelo Coaching, Jared Donnelly. Welcome to the story of Jared Donnelly, part two. In part one, we told the epic story of Dad, your journey as an athlete, as a professional athlete, and what that entailed and the big highs and lows of your professional triathlon career. And we finished with you retiring from professional triathlon. Uh, at that point, you had four of us kids under six years old. And so in part two today, we're going to tell the story of your coaching career, how your coaching has developed over a 30 plus year period. And I didn't think the story could get any more exciting than part one, but there are just so many surreal, cool, life-changing moments uh, throughout this part of the story that uh, you've even said multiple times equal some of the highlights of your professional career. So uh, we're going to be going through that in today's episode in part two. And a major part of that story that we're going to tell is that although you retired as a professional athlete, you were not done competing and your journey to once again reach the top as a master's athlete is one of the biggest contributing factors to your success as a coach. So, welcome to part two. Uh, again, you were a little bit reluctant to keep going with this story because uh, it has to be mentioned that you, you really, <laughs> it was a traumatic experience, part one, going through. Thanks, George, for uh, putting me through another, um, yeah, I hope I don't traumatize the listeners too much again <laughs> uh, with my <laughs> uh, with my emotion, but uh, I suppose it's an example of how things mean uh, so much to you and and it's it's a, an example of people who put their heart and soul into things, and you know it just means it means a lot. So um, yeah, I think it's a good attribute for others that I see. And so when it happens to me, it's I find it almost embarrassing, but it it, it is a reflection of what it means to you. And uh, and yeah, there's there's so much uh, that we can that we can explore in people's uh, own journeys that it, that mean a lot to them, and and that's why it brings out emotion. Absolutely. So let's start with how your coaching career began. You had already started coaching in the 80s while you were an athlete, uh, while you were learning what it took to be the best and what the best programs in the world entailed. Uh, and you had a group of athletes uh, that you were coaching at that point. And we mentioned in part one, one of them was uh, a man called Banger Harvey, who uh, is still a Trivelo athlete to this day. And it's just funny that you were coaching him back in the 80s and then uh, he's now a Trivelo athlete now. Yeah, it's a, it's a fantastic story, isn't it? And and look, it, it sort of started when I was teaching at some, you know, at some Bernards in Essendon. Um, my my desire to get the young kids to be, you know, the best 800 and 1500 meter runners they could, the the four by eight relays, the you know, the cross country team, the, the swimming team, getting those squads to 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 do personal bests and and if possible, you know, uh, win something. Um, and and that was that that was always there. I just I just really enjoyed seeing. Other people uh, succeed through my help, uh, and I think that was uh, that was right from when I was in my twenties. And at that point, uh, throughout the eighties, you and a few other triathletes uh, were so invested in triathlon that you started what the triathlon school the tri- of coaching. Or yeah, something? The triathlon coaching school. It's not the school of rock, isn't it? It was, <laughs> <laughs> it, was it was really innovative for our time. We were definitely ahead of our time, and uh, guys like Oscar Carlson and Phil Bedlington and. And you know, there's many more involved um, who are the driving force behind that. And um, and I did mention them a little bit earlier. We had budding triathletes who wanted to learn how to be a triathlete come to our our weekend camps um, that weren't anywhere except in the heart of Melbourne. Um, I remember lining up at the Sandringham 
Tulip Street uh, facility there where I had a swimming pool and, and we ran swim courses, we ran bike courses, we ran running courses, we had nutrition courses, uh, strength and development. Um, and that's the sort of stuff. We're talking 1988, 1987, 1989. And, you know, I had to come up with writing a course for that that you could sort of use as a template, uh, how to train um, on the bike as a runner, as a swimmer. And ironically, that kind of became a template for, I suppose, for future future coaches uh, who took over that that uh, that that business uh, model um, and then all those years later when I was investigating uh, getting certified as a triathlon coach um, I find it ironic that I wrote the first program <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and yet here I was uh, trying to qualify myself as a coach <laughs> yeah. Yeah. anyway that's a story in itself yeah that is that is quite funny the irony in that and at that point you were also uh, going to high schools and uh, taking some of the old wind trainers down and trying to get some kids involved in triathlon yeah well, i thought it'd be uh with the help of these guys i thought it'd be great if we could just bring triathlon to schools um and having been a you know the uh sports master at st bernard's and head of the phys ed department i could see the kids wanted to do something different and i thought if you know it's a really hard sport to 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 do because logistically it's you need a pool at school where do you ride your bike safely you know that in itself was a scary prospect so i decided well i'll jump them on train wind trainers um and running around the school was fine but so i took the course to the schools uh, and and that yeah that was really interesting um what kind of wind trainers did you have back then uh, we had these manure or minolta i think they were um yeah, they weren't too bad they just front wheel off on a fork um, and back wheel on a roller. Um, and of course, every kid had some bike that didn't fit and it was a logistical nightmare. <laughs> um, but we, we just, we persevered and um, I think we got some kids, you know, maybe if we got half a dozen kids to start doing triathlons, it was well worth it. Mm, absolutely. And so from that point, uh, you know, moving on to the 90s, you had stopped competing yourself in triathlon. You decided that was enough. Uh, although it should be said that you decided you would see how quick you could be in a marathon and you'd run a few marathons in Ironmans, uh, but you hadn't had a proper crack in peak form uh, at a fresh marathon and you really started that journey and uh, you took a few others with you and you were coaching your brother Frank for those that are in the Travella community and uh, greater Melbourne community will know Frank very well and a few others, uh, my uncle Paul Rouse who's also a Travello athlete, you've been coaching for 30 years um, and a few other friends around that you you started almost a running group and uh, we're coaching people for the marathon now yeah and uh we, we entered a few teams uh, in those days the melbourne marathon had a teams event and and we formed a three-man team um dave parker was another guy involved in that um who you know it was a guy i went through uni with and gary pollard another guy so we had a little little community um and at the end of the day uh getting these guys to do pbs was i was just as intent myself to do my own uh, to get get everybody to really run well on race day and and i i absolutely enjoyed that process of uh just coaching people for running um and experimenting on myself again um and yeah i i did have a an inner desire to see what i could do uh outside of an ironman in the marathon um it was pretty frustrating running you know quite slow in an ironman marathon and then you know knowing that you possibly could run half an hour quicker mm. um and as a fresh and I wanted to test that theory to see actually what I could do. And and that was a bit of a slow journey because I was still injured from, from triathlon days. So 
I nearly had to take you know, almost a year and a bit off uh, from running before I could go again. But it was great to have uh, Frank especially uh, start his career to break three hours and then um, over a three-year period uh, go from you know 256 to 248 to run a 240. Mm. Um, and that was pretty exciting uh, to literally run 20 minutes quicker over three years. Uh, three-year period by doing the program that I was giving myself mm-hmm. um, and he was on board with it, did everything, uh, didn't miss a session. Uh, we ran together a lot, ran the hills together. Um, uh, that was exciting. Yeah. And there's uh, actually, uh, Paul put up a great photo in our Facebook group and it's a, tri- it's a public group. So if you want to find Traveller Coaching on Facebook, uh, you can request to join and we'll add you in there. But he put up a great photo of one of the team's events where there's a few of you running and uh, there's some very handy times in there, all sub three hours. Um, yes. And like you said, you and Frank were handy runners yourselves. You know, Frank running a 240 and your PB was... 234, 234, I think. 234, yep. yeah. And look, Paul, on that, uh, that we won the team's event at the Melbourne Marathon with the three of us. It was the three combined times and Dave broke three hours and Paul broke three hours. Mm. So they'd ran, they ran 30 seconds different, 258 or something. Mm. And, and my 234 got us, got us the victory, which was uh, pretty exciting for the group to, to win. And another example of preparation and, and getting the result. Yeah, absolutely. And so as we move through the years, I mean, you quickly developed the same passion for coaching us kids and juniors uh, as you experienced when you were younger and I guess it was uh, you wanted to pass that same uh, feeling you had as a kid you know getting to train like that yeah I, I definitely uh, was really grateful for what my dad had done for me and we talked about that in the in the previous podcast with uh, Jeff Watt um, and and I'd learned so much about what the younger uh, athlete could cope with because uh, I'd, I'd had mm. it done to myself so I was careful because you obviously be my children. I didn't want to be that dad who was the pushy dad. Um, but y- you showed signs that you were interested and the minute you weren't was the time to stop. Yeah. Um, and you guys were all on board with it. Uh, you definitely, the, everybody listening, all four of our children uh, growing up were the smallest kids in every class. Um, so physically developed, um, you were probably a year or two and I think uh, the, our dentist told us the best uh, example was your teeth determine your physical um, age, um, not your chronological age. Mm-hmm. And and he's saying Liam, our oldest son, was his teeth development was like three years behind his age. Um, so by the time he got to 18 or 19, he just started to grow. Mm-hmm. Um, and you were the same. Mm-hmm. You were tiny. So you were a physical disadvantage in every sport that you competed in at school. Um, and that to me was an incredible challenge to try and get you to be competitive. I think we all had a lot of fun. I mean, you had a lot of fun coaching us and the squads that we were in as juniors uh, and we just had fun doing well. You know, I think times when you didn't want to run as a kid, but then you'd remember that school cross country is coming up and you want to win it. And um, when you perform well at those things, it, yeah, it's funny, you're learning as an eight-year-old what motivates you to train. Um, and I have fond memories of um, any talented kid in the neighborhood would come and join our little squad sessions where we would be doing mini hill repeats around here because we lived, grew up in Belgrave as we discussed in part one. But, you know, you would get in the area and they would come and join and we would have mini squads of eight kids and any talented kid that could run, you'd be jo- getting them to join in the group. Yeah, that was my theory. Get as many people involved. So it became a fun factor and uh, the competitiveness of people is what I was absolutely using to drive. Um, doing it solo, as everybody knows, as adults, it, it's hard work. You have to be intrinsically motivated. But if you if you put people together in a group situation for certain training days, 
that are important, the high intensity days, as we know now, um, then you will use that one session to to motivate people uh, to push themselves better. And I can still remember you guys saying, I want to win the school cross country, I want to win the swimming uh, events, and I want to win the athletics. And, you know, that was your goals. And in the local primary school of Belgrave, you know, you were, all of you were undefeated in every cross country from prep to year, grade six. And and that was something that you were proud of, you know, and, and you worked hard for it. And you probably deserve to do it because no one else was doing any training. Um, I never noticed, uh, probably until now, just thinking back about how much um, of your lessons were having a big impact on me. I remember being uh, nine years old and every year I, w- I was looking, I would look forward to the cross country to win it. And to be honest, because we were training, you'd win it by a country mile, but mm. I was still so nervous. And I remember waking up the morning of the school cross country day and that was all I was focused about. And I got up early and instead of watching TV, I sat there stretching in the, in the living room. <laughs> You would have been at work at this point already, but um, I spent the whole day nervous. None of the other kids are focusing on the race. And this is the same thing that happens as an adult when you've got your race, you wake up in the morning and you're mm. uh, doing that as a nine-year-old. is just so funny. Um, but as, as we hit the 2000s, uh, you know, you really had transferred this professionalism um, and drive as an athlete into coaching uh, us kids and, and anything that we're involved in, whether that was school or um, little athletics groups. And it was transferred straight to us and um, a few of the key things are as we got older and got a little bit more serious about training and I say older I mean yeah, 10, 11, 12 um, you had the same philosophies you kept um, notebooks for each of us where you would write in every session we did and next time we'd go to the track you'd say okay last time we did these four 200s these were your times um, and you had every single session recorded for us uh, as well as uh, every race you had a scrapbook of every single race performance um, so then we, when we did that race again uh, you said oh you ran this last time you know, aiming for a PB and it's all the same principles um, that you did as an athlete, did it with us kids and then now it's just, again, transferred into training peaks and we have, uh, you know, in Trivello we have Excel spreadsheets with um, just relentless data on athlete performances, you know, split times, that kind of thing. It's just funny how it's transferred all the way through. Yeah, I think um, you've, you've got to find ways that, and look, if you ended up winning events, that is a bonus. It was me trying to give you the idea that you just wanted to be better than you were last time. And if that ended up you winning, great. But as long as you performed equal to and tried to, to improve, that was more important. And that's why those notes were so important to you. I'd say, you know, here's, what, here's your, your most recent times. Um, how are you feeling? And it was always based on that. Do you think you can run strong tonight? And there were the questions you would, I'd ask you, mm. you know, you, you're right to go tonight and say, oh, maybe not feeling so well. And we'd say, okay, let's just try and match, match mm. what we did. So it was always based around some data and some feeling um, as to how we were going to train. And there was never pressure to win. That was, that was far from, you know, and the conversation in the car on the way home from a, a race day or from a training session was, how do you think you went? Mm. Rather than... What happened? Why didn't you win? Um, and that's the, the analogy I, I want to make with everybody I'm coaching now is it's about how you felt you performed and making sure you go back because you, the, the performance is raw straight afterwards and that's the best time to self-analyze your performance. Mm. And, and you learn so much more about post-race as much as you do in the race. Um, and so you guys embrace that a lot. And and I never wanted you to have pressure, and I'm not sure whether that was the case or not, but you had your own pressure you put on yourselves. 
you didn't need me adding to it. And it was more about the performance rather than the result. Um, and I still believe that's, that's a, that is something that's made my career so successful is forget about the result. That's the goal. That is exactly why you're doing it. But if you organize yourself with the process, then the result should take care of itself. So I suppose if I could get children to understand that concept and embrace it, it would be a no-brainer for adults. And yet, I think children are more trusting of the process than adults, and they don't question. Uh, so they believe that you know exactly best, what yeah. you, is best for, for you. And that's kind of the relationship I want to build with the athletes. I certainly want them to ask questions and to make me explain what the purpose of this session is. And if that enables them to perform the session or the event better, then it's a, it's a win. But they certainly need to be on board with, with the, the process that we're doing. I have been asked that throughout my life a few times. Did I feel pressure because of your um, success? Or did I feel like you ever put pressure on us because we did train a lot? Um, and the answer is such a resounding no. And in fact, in hindsight, um, I almost think that you instilled that lesson into us so much that going through um, all those years as a junior, I was just so focused on my own race. And I just, I was so drilled into my own race. I barely was paying attention to what was happening around. And that was almost, it was almost to a detriment where mm. um, almost needed a little bit more pressure to be a bit more ruthless and kind of have that a bit more of a winning edge. Um, and maybe, but maybe it was a good thing as well because we were quite undeveloped as kids. We weren't as good as the kids that were developing. So had we put our, that pressure on ourselves to actually win, mm. uh, it would have been maybe worse because you just, you just couldn't match some of those kids that were. Well, it would have been unfair. Yeah, um, you, you're already an unfair disadvantage being physically immature, and for me to have the expectation that I want you to win would you would have given up, and I wanted you to be. I wanted you to participate for as long as you wanted to, yes. as long as it was fun and enjoyable. And, you know, there's so many little things you could do to make it fun. And that's the team environment. Mm. And that's kind of what led to your secondary school um, achievements was based around that fun factor with, you know, your mates doing the same thing. And that's, that's kind of how this, this kept progressing uh, as you were um, really involved in a lot of coaching uh, with us kids and, and those around us. And you ended up being a bit of a scout for um, the high school we went to and uh, ended up sending a, a bunch of talented kids. And we ended up with this kind of super team. Um, and the high school cross-country system that we competed in uh, here in Melbourne was quite competitive and it's, it's a really fun system. It's the same, similar to the college system in America where you race and every point counts, you know, so it doesn't matter if you're coming first, 10th or 70th, you know, your, your top six places count. So if you're the sixth best runner, but you come 60th, you know, it's a total point system. So it's a really team environment, which is really fun. But I, I mean, uh, the, the, the point I want to make is that um, uh, I just remember as a kid, you know, learning all these principles and it's just so funny how they still apply and um, you had us, uh, our squad going up to um, Sherbrooke every Sunday and do, to do the long run, you know, to do the long hill run and your version of the long hill run as a pro athlete was a two hour <laughs> mm. loop around. But mm. ours was, you know, as a nine year old, I had a 20 minute loop and Liam, my older brother, had the 30 minute loop and mm. I couldn't wait to graduate to the 30 minute loop, you know, and that was, mm. that was the long run for the week. Um, and yeah, as we started to go through high school, the fact that you know, on this, on this point of, I don't want to hammer this, but um, yeah, being smaller and um, feeling like we're at a physical disadvantage because there were kids that were a foot taller than us and stronger than us and had muscles already. Um, 
the fact that we had such a good training program and we and we stuck to such good training principles, which was have a good aerobic base and do these track sessions and do the Sunday long run, you know, we were able to qualify for the state team and compete in nationals. And I think, um, you know, both did reasonally well at nationals. I think Liam got a top seven finish mm. in one year, um, which just showed how good the aerobic capacity was as, as juniors, even though we weren't um, anaerobically as strong and uh, physically as strong as other runners. I think that really tells a, a good story of that. Yeah. I don't underestimate your determination and your competitiveness. So, you know, it's one thing to be fit and you were probably fitter than anybody in the fields that you're competing in. They were just more talented at the time um, because of their physical. But I never, ever mentioned that uh, to you that, you know, don't worry, these kids are, these kids are bigger and better and stronger um, and my expectation is that you won't beat them. That was never a message that I would send. Uh, everybody who starts is a chance. And that's the message I was sort of saying, you know, if you strategize well enough and don't be a sheep and sprint. And I can remember so many Saturday cross country events where most of the, you know, there's 50 or 60 guys lining up on the, on the start line. And it was the fastest hundred meters out of a 3k race that you could possibly see. And I would always be saying to you guys, don't sprint at the start. Just work your way through the field after five or six minutes of everybody's reached their anaerobic threshold in the first 30 seconds and start, you know, they've blown up and then you guys can strategize your way through the field. And, you know, but that wasn't fun. You know, everybody was sprinting and here I've got you guys 20 or 30 meters off the back. And, you know, you did well to, to kind of accept that and cope with that. Um, but that's the same principle now is run to your mm. pace, mm. ride to your pace, mm. you know, without, you know, just don't be a sheep and follow someone else's race plan. And that's great for the guy who's a winner. It's not great for the guy who's, you know, possibly going to finish a minute behind him. Why is he going to start at the, the winner's pace? Mm. Um, it's going to be an ugly finish for, for all those guys. And they were going so slow by the end. You guys were always fast finishing. That principle of the aerobic base is just so true, mm. isn't it? <laughs> yeah, most definitely. Um, I, I think that the strength you had um, for the back half of your running races was purely from those Sherbrooke runs. Obviously, the intervals um, were, were giving you the intensity you needed, but you were so strong because you've been running up and down these mountains um, since you were you know, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, all the way through to you were 16, 17, 18 when you left school. So you'd had a good 10 years of, of Sherbrooke, and you know every trail up there, you know, you could be a guide for, um, for, for running trails at, at the forest up there. So it's, you know... It's the same principle all the time. It's, it's a boring thing, but it, it's actually why you were successful. And, you know, for you guys to make the state teams as, as junior cross-country runners, when we went away together, people were thinking you were just there as a brother or sister because you were so little against the other kids in the team. And yet here you are lining up on the, on the start line and, and people go, oh, you know, great result from a little kid. Mm. Um, so it was, it was really – I was proud to, to – to see that you guys embrace the whole thing, you never let it worry you that that, uh, that you were physically smaller, but um, you still put yourselves out there. Well, it was so naive that I didn't actually realize. I didn't. I didn't realize until a few years ago. I don't think. And I saw a photo of me with my um, athletics teammates, and I am just that much smaller. And I went, "Wow!" I didn't at the time. I didn't realize how much of a disadvantage mm. it was because you never mentioned it. So I didn't have any reason to believe that being yep. smaller was such a disadvantage. But it is very funny looking back. Um, but. I mean, the point of all this is that you were so involved in um, the 
just the culture you were trying to instill in anyone that enjoyed running and that came into our school cross country culture. Um, you know, you would talk to us about race tactics the whole way there. Um, and even uh, other runners in the school, you know, you were making sure that we were creating a really good team environment and we, you started this thing um, <laughs> called the huddle and before each race, you know, it's, it's 120 kids or whatever in the race and um, you just go to the start line and start normally and you made us all get in a team huddle and the, the cross-country captain, which happened to be our middle brother, Matt, the first year this happened, was um, would do a little speech and get everyone revved up and then go to the start line. And I was running with some old schoolmates uh, a few weeks ago and they were telling me that, because um, we were laughing about how we started this huddle thing, and they were telling me that every single team now, 10 years later, does it. You know, every team does a big team huddle like a footy huddle. Um, mm. And I just thought that was so fantastic to hear that, that um, you, know, you really, that passion for um, the running was uh, a sign of your passion for coaching at that point, And it was, you were just instilling it wherever you could go. The inclusiveness is also the importance of that. Um, so we had guys in our cross-country team who were going to come first, second, third, fourth, fifth in the top 10. But because the formula was you're only as good as your sixth runner, and I was instilling in everybody that we need to be encouraging our 6th, 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th runner. I think we had 10 runners in a team. And if they, those 6th, 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th runners in our team could beat the 4th, 5th runners from other teams, then we would win on the day. And every week, you either won or you lost. Um, and so the idea was to make everybody feel a part of the team. And, and coming 67th or 94th was just as important as coming 5th or 1st. And everybody felt that, I think. And, mm. and that's what you're wanting to, you're wanting to get everybody in, on the same page and, and believe in the same uh, formula. So it was at this point that we were um, in high school, we were all catching the bus to and from school, um, slightly less driving and commitment from you, although it was still very big, um, but you were able to get back into some training yourself and uh, you were slowly able to get back into cycling and you started to really enjoy it again. Yeah, but I... I definitely during that period made a conscious decision that it wasn't about me anymore and, and I really was invested in making sure that you had the same opportunities that I had when I grew up that my father had given me and he, he literally took me to, I could play state-level badminton. I mean, who would have thought in a town like Warrigal, um, I played state-level cricket, football, soccer, um, cross-country, swimming squad, athletics, table tennis and so that was my philosophy. I was just going to do the same. And you guys can select what sport you want to do when you've had a go at them all. And if you wanted to do triathlons, fine. But if you didn't, don't worry about it. You, you, and you guys have selected touch, touch football as, as your passion and surfing. Um, and only recently you've, you've really taken to back to running and, and you know, possibly venturing into triathlon. So as an example, you, know, you can actually pick up a sport that you, you think you might have a crack at and and do quite well at it because you were exposed to a variety of um, of sports and that you know your eyes were open to what's out there. You were just trying to take advantage of any second you could because uh, yeah, I remember you would pick us up. You'd have to leave work early and pick us up from school to take us to our um, squad training, our athletics training, and uh, we would go train. And you had a spare hour, and so you you'd bring your bike and you'd start doing an hour push out a max one hour session and, and start doing some interval training again and uh, you couldn't do any bunch rides on Saturday because we had Saturday sport all day and there was you know four kids playing Saturday sport across Victoria so mm. um, tough to get around but um, the, 
the point is you really just started to slowly make a comeback. Uh, as we got a little bit older, 15, 16, 17, um, you were able to just slowly increase that riding and, and get that passion back. It's interesting you mentioned that because the big athletics carnival day was middle of October at Olympic Park and it was the Associated Private Schools, Public Schools uh, Sports, which is huge. And De Costello had set records there and Mottram and, you know, it's a big athletics day. And the Melbourne to Warrnambool bike race was always on the same weekend. And I think I've told the story. I only did my first Melbourne to Warrnambool a year ago. Yes. Was it two years ago? Two years ago, COVID, yeah. At 61. And I, I think I entered it 10 times um, from when I, was, <laughs> when I was 40 and when you, and you guys were in the middle of your – and I had to choose between doing the Melbourne to Warrnambool and going to watch you guys at Olympic Park. And for you to make the 4x8 team or, you know, be in the team was just massive effort. And, and so it was a no-brainer. I, you know, I'm going to miss the Melbourne to Warrnambool. I'm going to get there one day. Um, but, but, yeah, just – just starting to, to redo some of the training principles on myself when I could see that you guys, because I used to go to your, your training sessions, we used to pick you up from work at, from school at 3.30 from Berwick and take you to Frankston where your squad, your new squad, when you'd grown out of being coached by me and it was time for me to step back and let you have some other coach take over and have other young uh, kids of your age to train with, which I thought was more important than being that was the main part. Yeah. Being isolated with your dad. Um, and so that was a whole new opening for you. you. You enjoyed that so much more than training just with the three of you. Um, and so that was worth the trip from leave, me leaving work at 2.30 to get to, to Berwick at 3.30 to drop you off at Frankston at 4.30. And I used to watch your training sessions and, and uh, you know, really make sure that the coach was doing what I thought <laughs> was right. And after I totally was on board with what she was doing, Nikki. Nikki Frey and her sons were really good runners, and and that was easy for me then to go right. I can I can step away and I can go and do an hour while they're training, and and that's what I did. I started to to do some training again, and um, it was a horrible experience early because I was that far away from you know fifteen years earlier. So I almost had that much time away from. Um, and in hindsight, a mistake that I made, and I would I would tell this to young athletes uh in their 30s 40s who've got young families not to stop doing um you don't have to do it at the same level you know you don't have to compete at a high level but to keep your fitness so that when you have the opportunity and your kids are gone that you don't start again and literally i i, I would it was three or four years of me just being really average um getting dropped by guys that, that you know that i would had no trouble with earlier um and just having such a low base and it was it was it was not enjoyable early on to try and get myself uh fit uh, it took a long time um and yeah i i really enjoyed the process because i was coming from such a, a low beginning so I could, the only place i could go was up so i was improving a lot but it, it didn't happen in six months like i thought it would um i was a different shaped i, I was you know probably eight 10 kilo heavier um, than I was when I was a professional. Um, I'd lost my aerobic base. I was at rock bottom mm. in terms of fitness. So I had to start the journey again and get my thinking cap on again and, and try, you know, as you, you guys were not needing me as, as much, then the opportunities for me opened up again. Um, so 
I think that would be the message I would send is keep doing something, whether you're doing a 20-minute run every second day. I didn't do any of that. I should have been doing something. I used the excuse I didn't have time. Well, I did. You just make time. Mm. I, I should have planned better. Like I started to do when you guys were being, you know, being coached by someone else, there's an hour. You know, I could use 20 minutes of it to run if I wanted to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like that would be some adv- – uh, it is a lot of advice you give to people when they come into the coaching program and they just want to get as fit as fast as possible and they want to get there within six months or a year. And a lot of people, once you started racing again, probably assumed that, you know, you, of course, you were a previous professional athlete, you're a gun master's rider, you're doing well. Uh, but it wasn't that smooth sailing for you. It took you years to get back there and yeah. you had to be patient. Yeah, um, uh, look, I was – you asked me some questions earlier about when did you start to get some success again as a master's rider, and I, I I think it was five or six years before I I actually had a breakthrough uh, event and um and then I thought oh yeah I'm on the right track again I'm I'm finally arrived again uh, in my own little mind um but but up until then it was it was more fun um and I didn't want to be a professional again I wanted to see definitely what I could do against masters uh, athletes and that was a challenge but I, I, I still didn't want it to be my everything. Um, I wanted to have that balance and I think that's one thing that I still believe now is that you will do better if, if you have a balance in your life. Um, you know, if, if, if you, you know, I'm still making those mistakes. i am still got the balance wrong at times and, you know, your mum will, you know, point that out to me when I've got too carried away again um, because it's easy to do because if you're so motivated you're single-minded and it's not it's not the Olympics it's not the you know the be all and end all there's other things going on that you need to have perspective um, and and it's fun and and uh, challenging but it, it's just got to be in perspective with whatever's going on in your life and I'm forever saying to people, if you do something to the extreme level, it's unsustainable. And that's the philosophy. I think if everybody can, the message they can get from what I'm, the story I'm telling now is do it to the extreme, it won't last. Something will give, whether you break down, um, whether your relationships break down because you're so selfish, you're single-minded, your, your determination's far outweighed by what else is happening in the world. Um, um, so, you know, if you try and lose weight, the analogy would be if you're trying to lose weight over a period of six months and if you decide to lose one kilo every month, you could be, you know, drop six six kilo, which would be a pretty big thing for a lot of people. We all hear the stories of people dropping 30 kilo in two weeks. But guess what? Ask them two years later mm. what their weight is. A fair percentage, I don't know the stats, would be back to the weight that they were. So if it's unsustainable, it won't succeed. So if it's, if it's you know, that's the, the, the balance philosophy that I think you need to have in your training and in everyday life. Um, and, and that's the thing I tried to learn from what I did as a professional, which is I needed to be extreme mm-hmm. to succeed. Mm-hmm. Now I don't need to be like that. I want it to still be fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I absolutely love riding my bike. And if I was able to run over the, journey because I still haven't been able to run properly since those injuries, um, I would still run because I love it. Mm. It, it, it. The freedom of running, um, especially in around, you know, Sherbrooke and and you get you get to see things in slow motion. Bikes 
as good as well. And when we travel overseas, um, I'm exploring wherever I am in Spain or Italy or uh, France or Belgium. I'm exploring on a bike pace and you see so much. And, wh- and your mum and I, would, she'd go for her walks and i go for my ride in the morning when we're in, overseas and I'd come back and say, we've got to go and see this. I just saw this on my ride and mm. we'd jump in the car and I'd take it to something I would never have seen if I wasn't on my bike. Mm. Um, and that's the passion I have. I love being good at it, but I actually love the the experience of riding and having the sun on my back and and exploring new places around the world. You know, pre COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, so the fun factor was important to me, and um, I, I had to put goals in front of myself. Unfortunately, because as much as I love riding my bike, I still found it hard in winter. Or you know, I'm still got a full time job. I have to fit the training in, so I've got to be motivated to get out of bed at. You know, twice a week I was getting out of bed at, at five to four to go and do a training session down at the beach with the group of guys I was training with. And we were doing teams time trial every Tuesday, Thursday. Getting, I had to be there at five thirty for five thirty start. So I, you know, it's forty five minute drive plus getting up and making sure you got everything organised. So it's a really early start. So I had to have a goal to to allow me to to get up at that time of the morning. So so you have to play tricks on yourself uh, to get yourself. Uh, to the start line almost um, and in the best shape possible and that's the things I was doing um, uh, so that it wouldn't interfere with the family. I'd be finished the training session at 6.30. I'd go to work. We started work at 7 a.m. and get home and, you know, time for you guys after school. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was the plan that I put in place and I did that for, I don't know, 15 years uh, whilst you were, you know, in primary school all the way through to when you finished uh, secondary school and went to uni. So so that that worked really well because I was pr- planned. And there was a pretty life-changing moment in there, I'd say, which was a, uh, and I say life-changing because it was a bit of a turning point in uh, the evolution of your coaching career. And that was uh, the Cadell Evans story. And I think this really uh, flicked something in your, in your brain about, and about the trajectory of your, your own coaching and your exploration of performance and we have told this on one of the earliest podcast episodes but not a lot of people have heard one of our very first episodes uh so tell this story about riding with Cadell Evans and what that's switched inside of you at this age um look as everybody knows Cadell used to come home in our summer in the European winter and he had a house in Bowen Heads and as a family with a couple of other families that you've grown up with we always uh holidayed together the three families in one house in Bowen Heads and we spent a lot of time and we went to other places as well, but we spent the majority of your time at this house in Bowen Heads. And there was a, always a group on the Saturday morning, or there was always a group every morning. And Cadell would occasionally ride with the local group, which was really good of him because this is 2005, six, yeah. six, seven, eight. You know, he was starting to become, and 2011, he won the Tour de France. So he podiumed in 2007, 2008. Yeah, he was, you know, on the Giro, he was, you know, successful and he won Flesh Alone. And, you know, he didn't really need to be riding with, you know, a pack of old guys in Lycra. Um, but he did and he gave his time and it was really impressive actually. And we do a thing called country turns where you would ride side by side to a breast and everybody would move up one and Cadell would get to talk to you for, you know, a minute and then the person at the front would move over to the left and the next person would move up and then Cadell would move up to the next person. So the groups became huge because they knew that possibly Cadell was going to ride and and it was a really good community thing that he was doing and he was encouraging people to ride their bikes and asking them, how's your training going? He's a fantastic person. 
Um, and he comes across, you know, a little bit um, out there and, and that's what you have to be to be a champion, I think. You have to have some sort of difference between the, the commoners, as I would say. Um, but he was really good with his time. And, and one day I managed to ask him because he would always go from that ride onto his then proper ride. It was like his warm-up. Mm-hmm. And then he would go out from that point where at the back of uh, wherever um, Paraparap or, or the Bells Beach Circuit. Uh, anyway, I was so keen to go for a ride with him, just me and him. And I, and I was just uh, kind of, he took off and everybody turned and that was the, the protocol. And I kind of stayed back a bit and, and came up behind him after about five minutes. I think I scared the living daylights out of him because uh, he hadn't started training, but I, was, I rode flat out to catch back up to him and said, oh, do you mind if I just ride behind you? And, and I think he was not happy at all because that was his rule that no one wants to ride with him. But um, he goes, oh, yeah, okay, whatever. Um, anyway, so he started doing what – I didn't know what he was doing. He started doing his efforts that, um, that his coach from uh, Italy had been sending him online. And, and uh, anyway, he started doing the first effort, then he sort of pulls up. And I think we'd re- ridden about – five minutes um, and and i was doing everything in my power to hold his wheel i i was trying to hide from the wind i certainly had understood what, what side of the wheel to ride on in a crosswind and i could see him sort of looking under his arm to see if i was still there and of course at the end of it he, he sort of puts his hand up saying oh that's it for the first effort and so i was like breathing flat out saying what, what, what are you what are you doing what, what, what's next and he'd say oh, i'm gonna do five of these I was thinking, oh my God, I'm never gonna, I'm never gonna keep up. But uh, I said, at what pace? You know, what what speed are you riding at? He said, speed? No, no, I'm riding to power. And you know, the, after the next five minute, we're ready to start the next one because it was one minute rest. And then away we go again. And the next one minute, I'd ask him a few more questions. What do you mean? What's power? I'm, what What are you talking about? You powering your legs? Or and then the next the next one minute was no, no, it's a power meter. And I'm just blown away. I have no idea what he's talking about. And Anyway, we finished those efforts and then we were heading to uh, Point Addis, which for those who know, the west coast of, uh, of Victoria, it's got Bells Beach and, um, and you know, all the famous surf resorts. Anyway, some of the, the roads down to the beach have got some hills. So he said, I'm going to do some one-minute hill repeats uh, at the Point Addis circuit. Um, you can come there and we'll just cruise along and we'll talk till then. So I had the opportunity to ask him all about the power meter and he explained it all to me and Oh, my mind was blown. Oh, I just thought, this is, I need to, I need to get a power meter and, and start training with power and rather than just perceived exertion. That's what I'd done for literally 20 years. Was, and and I, at that stage, I had a computer that told me the average speed and the distance. And I think I had a polar heart rate meter. Can't remember exactly when I got that. But, uh, but anyway, we did these one-minute hill repeats and, um, and I said to him, oh, I'm never going to be able to keep up with you on these. And he says, I'm just going to go up and back why don't you turn halfway and I'll go to the bottom and then I'll see if I can catch you. So we did that and I don't, can't remember how many we did, but, you know, in my mind at the time I was thinking, oh, far out, Cadell Evans is chasing me up this hill. It was like a race situation. It was like my childhood dream, you know. I'm, I'm on my bike and, and could, he probably wouldn't even remember any of this. this uh, but it was everything to me. It was, you know, can I stay away from Cadell and get to the top and, you know, the first couple, I was pretty gung ho, and then as I got tighter and tighter, he was passing me halfway up the hill, and um, but he was laughing a bit. But uh, but anyway, and then he said, uh, "Great stuff, you've done a really good job." And now we're going to go and do some. Uh, I think it was more tempo work around. And at this stage, I'd already done 120k. It was 35 degrees. 
think I had one drink bottle with me and I'd ridden as hard as I'd ridden <laughs> in the last, I think, decade. Um, and I said, how, how much longer? And he goes, oh, it's probably another hour and a half before we get to Barwon Heads. And I said, no, nah. even I knew then that that was enough. Um, as much as I wanted to keep riding with him, I had to crawl. I basically crawled home at 10 k's an hour, I reckon, stopped at Torquay before and sat under a tree with a can of Coke. And, <laughs> and uh, then I got back to Barwon Heads. And I, this, when I got back, the guys at the, uh, the house were asking, you know, did you, did you ride with Cadell? You planned it at work? I said, yeah, you would. it's the best day I've ever had. But this, the, the reason we're telling it is because it, it, it changed my whole thinking about training. And how organized he was and specific he was with what he was doing. And we used to go in the afternoon to the beach with you kids. And um, I remember sitting on the beach looking at uh, the Barwon Bridge. And I saw Cadell behind the motorbike in the afternoon uh, doing motor pacing in the afternoon. So he did that 150k ride in the morning. And here he was doing motor pacing in the afternoon. He did tell me he had strength gym work to do at lunchtime. I didn't know about the motor pacing, but I saw him in the afternoon and I thought, that's what it takes mm. to be the best. Well, that's, he, was, he was top three, top five GC rider at that point. So. Yeah, and, and it was such an eye-opener to me of the professionalism that he had. He was, you know, I think I was quite knowledgeable as, a, as an athlete and as a coach, but this was next level to me. And it, it really was a turning point that if you want to be successful, and I'm, it doesn't have to be all the time about winning, but if you want to be better, you have to do things better. You, you, have, to, you have to be organized. You have, you have to manage it better. You have to, you have to act like a professional. Um, even if you're a master's rider, if you want to be better, you have to do things better. And if you're going to spend an hour and a half, do it properly. Don't do it like make it up as you go. You know, have structure. Have a plan. And, and from that point on, even though I felt like I was very organized, he exposed that I wasn't. Mm. Um, I thought I was, but it was next level. And I, and I think that that really helped me in my adult life, um, post-professional, to be a much better coach, I reckon. And, and I was a much better athlete because my time-efficient training went through the roof. I didn't have the time, but now I was training so much smarter. It's such a you story to just decide that you, you told the guys, I've got a plan here, I'm going to ride with Cadell tomorrow and you sat at the back and you peeled off and you had the guts to go, no, nah, I want to find out what he's doing and it's just typical of your personality, same as in the 80s, I'm going to go find out what the best people are doing and here's your chance to do it and it was um, one of the most beneficial decisions you've made. You'd say. Yeah, it was a bit of a risk because he could have told me to yeah. rack off um, yeah. but he, that's the sort of personality he was. I think he thought, oh, this guy's that keen mm. you know what harm's it doing mm. I, I think he felt sorry for me <laughs> uh, but when he realized that i could actually hold his wheel mm. and I, I didn't add the very first five minute effort i moved to the left a little bit and i was looking down and we were doing 45 k's an hour or something like that and i thought oh must mustn't be that hard there must be a tailwind or and i moved and and i nearly lost five bike lengths because i put my nose in the wind for a second like oh shit how hard is this and back in behind his wheel and as we know there's a 30 percent uh, effect of uh drafting and that and and that was an eye-opener to me because whether you're riding into the wind or against the wind uh with the wind he could ride the power meter um both ways because the the course we were on 
that turned, mm. turned left and right. And so we had crosswinds and we had tailwind and we had a headwind. And he was, yet, he was holding the same power, yet the speeds were different. Mm-hmm. You know, one minute we're doing 55 with the tailwind and the crosswind we're doing 45 and in the headwind we're doing 40. You know, so, and he said, I've done all five efforts the same. I said, no, we haven't. Mm. We've done them mm-hmm. this speed, that speed. He goes, speed's nothing. Mm-hmm. S- speed's good at the end mm. when you've got an average, but the power is everything. I, I actually met Cal Cadell about 10 years later on a charity ride, and my job was to, um, to get the corporate riders to spend a minute beside him, almost like we had the country turns, and I was to ride beside him, uh, sorry, behind him, to protect him from being cross-wheeled or from getting getting crashed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I didn't get a chance to say to him, I, you will not remember me, but I did this on this particular day and it was a bit of a game changer. And, and his typical modest fashion, he goes, oh, no, that's great. You know? mm-hmm. um, but he, nah, yeah, yeah. there's no recollection of it. But Yeah. And I want to I wanna leave the coaching side of things aside for the moment. I mean, from that point on, you just dived into power. You bought Joe Friel's power book uh, right behind me. We've got the shelf here and there's uh, Andy Coggan and, um, and uh, what's his first name? Alan, um, the power guru. Uh, I can't remember, training racing with a power meter. It's got, got the power meter handbook. You know, you've got these, all these books from the 2000s that you just got your hands on. And, um, you know, we use Andy Coggan's power um, zones uh, in our yep. training programs at the moment. And, um, you you dive right into that and, and got so heavily involved and uh, again even as a junior uh, I mentioned that um, I was the first person out of any runner I knew I, I honestly believe the first per- first junior fifteen year old in the state to get a heart rate monitor I had a polar heart rate monitor a polar heart rate watch and I was so tiny that the big bulky polar heart rate was bigger than my wrist you know it felt like it was as big as my hand and kids would look at me and go what what is what is heart rate got to do with anything or what is pace like why are you looking at pace you know <laughs> and we, as a 15-year-old, you couldn't even understand what pace was. Um, you had some high heart rates there. A, I can remember vividly saying 209s and 210s. 213, and- I think, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's, that's how far ahead you were. And uh, I guess this really was the catalyst again to get that, bring that competitiveness out of you. And as we got older and you had more and more time, um, the older we got, uh, you started that full-blown self-experimentation again. And um, internally, I think you really started a quest for um, to get to the top of your game, and uh, I'm going to say, really, for Masters domination, that that journey began. Yeah, and I was so much more excited uh, as as I was compared to being a professional because I had so much more help. Mm. Um, oh, how exciting is it to know that the session you're doing is you can quantify exactly what you're doing, whereas you're not doing it by feel. And that was a game changer. And I I loved. I couldn't wait to train again to see what my my tools were telling me as I was training, um, whereas before it was totally on, on, you know, can I push a bit harder? I don't know if I'm pushing the right power on the bike or the pace as a runner. I don't know. I've got no idea. It just feels like I'm trying harder. But now I could look down and see, well, actually, I feel like I'm pushing harder, but my power is dropping, um, you know, and it would, it would prove to me that I started every, if I used, you know, Cadell's training method and i actually did a lot of those five by fives from that you know I'll, that was one of my go-to sessions for myself if it's good enough for cadell i'm doing it <laughs> yeah. uh, i didn't know the theory behind it but now i understand and and i would you know definitely without the power meter i would be doing the first one at you know way too hard and the last one creeping whereas now i was measuring my efforts from start to finish and 
And even that was exciting to know that you know, you're actually doing all five at the right intensity. So from that point, you uh, put a little, uh, as, as you always would, you put a few goals uh, in your head. You started doing more and more races and some uh, key goals came up on the calendar. And once you decide these things, in your own mind, we all know that you get hell-bent on achieving them. Uh, and I'll start with the first major event that you wanted to win, and that was Tour of Bright. And Tour of Bright is a uh, tour in Victoria. And it, uh, it really gained some legs in that period of when you were racing in 2008 to 2013. And Shane Miller actually mentioned on the podcast a few weeks ago that in that period, because cycling was exploding and Cadell won the Tour de France and you know, it was selling out, it had the most riders um, you know, competing every single year. And it was yep. hyper-competitive. And uh, that was a bit of a monkey on your back, wasn't it? Yeah, and look, some of the great riders, Richie Port and um, um, Simon Gerrans and you know, some really good riders have had a crack at it and um, there's still some great riders who have done it to this day. Uh, and I'm talking Masters. I'm not talking yeah. the Open because the Tour of Bright is – it's a local Victorian three-stage tour. And it, at one stage, it was a four-stage tour and now it got dropped back to a three-stage tour. It had a time trial, had a road race with a hilltop climb finish and it had a hilltop climb road race finish. So it was a real climber's threshold type uh, athlete cyclist event and that was what I thought was my strength was – threshold riding um, from triathlon days, um, but I soon learnt very quickly that I wasn't that good in the mountains. Um, uh, I was good as a triathlete, but not, not as a cyclist. So, um, and my time trialling as a, as a short time trial, so the, the events were 20 minutes. I was great for 180k, <laughs> but I had no high-end power um, for 20 minutes and I had to reinvent that. So, so I kind of embraced this and all of our community, our group that I, that I trained with, the Tour of Bright was the big, the big event. It was like the world titles of, of uh, tour stage racing in, in Victoria. Especially for Masters riders. Yeah, it was. Um, it was a stepping stone for the, for the open elite riders to, to go on to better things. And we didn't have the NRS in those days, National Road Series for the up and coming. Um, you either became a good rider and went to Europe and, you know, like the Simon Clarks and Simon Gerrans and Richie Ports and all the guys who've made Studio Grades, they've all done these, you know, these top, type of open races and done well and then got looked at um, and went overseas. But, but this was an event that I thought, right, I, I really I want to have a crack at, you know, see, see if I can win a Masters event um, such as this. Um, and that was a, a, driving, a driving reason. Again, it's the goal setting that was the thing that was going to, you know, I had to, I had to put something in front of myself and I thought this, this Tour of Bright thing is, is certainly one thing I want to do. And, so I started doing the event and, and I was, again, very average. Um, so it took me to change my whole training process and, and start seeing the guys who were doing well, what were they doing, and learning again, doing the whole situation, scenario, repeated like it was 20 years earlier. Contacting guys like Shane Miller and… Yeah, and, you know, Dave Sturt, um, he was a bit of a legend, Steggles. Um, you know, he taught me so much about um, preparing. He was… He was a master's writer, you know, probably six or seven years younger than me, um, but a, a really, uh, really talented uh, writer and had ridden a Sun Tour. And um, so I learned a lot about uh, preparation um, for stage tour writing, which I knew nothing about, um, and got really good advice from, from people like that. And, and you know, it took, took a long time for me to, to, to start to, to get some success, but, uh, but I really enjoyed the whole process. And, Got excited about it. Couldn't wait for the Tour of Bright every December. Trained the whole year for the Tour of Bright. Um, 
and uh, that's what that's what it was about for those for those few years. That was an interesting one because uh, it took you a few years longer than you'd like to finally win it. You know, you, you just had problem after problem each year. Some years you had a mechanical, some years I think you were sick. Um, you even had a crash one year before it, and yep. Uh, took a lot of uh, persistence to finally win it, so it was a pretty uh, satisfactory, satisfying achievement when you finally did win it. Yeah, and it was a little bit uh, demoralizing when I thought that I was doing everything right, but I wasn't getting any any success. But I I knew that I had to just do it. You know, I had to come together mm. uh, eventually. Um, so I did probably eight or nine tour brights, um, and I you know I I'd got second, third, fifth, you know. And just missed out here and there, and um, and then finally, finally won one. But uh, and that was a very satisfying moment, and I nearly lost it uh, on the uh, the climb to Hotham. Um, I don't know, bore the listeners with the, but uh, all I had to do was finish with the lead pack, and I think I had a fifteen second lead. And the guy I had to beat, I just had to mark him, mm. and I was feeling fantastic. But I've learnt that I don't go well above. Maybe fifteen hundred meters at altitude, and Hotham was over that, and I was going great guns till the last ten minutes, and and I started to falter, and I'm not sure if the guys realised, but I was doing everything to hide, um, and the guy who was second got a gap on me, and I only ended up winning by eight seconds, mm. um, and he he brought seven seconds back. I don't know if you realised, all he had to do was attack a bit more, and I was done. Um, but it was another tactical, but, but yeah, it was, it was, I learned a lot about, you know, stage racing and, and understanding, you know, how to defend a yellow jersey. And it was, it was life lessons that now you see on telly, you know. This is what this whole period was. It was just, you were throwing yourself into everything and even the altitude lesson there, you know, a couple of years later, you had your first experience spending a month at altitude in France and now you can handle altitude, you know. (laughs) Yeah. And, and. And I was shocked that I couldn't perform um, as well as I could meters lower, mm. and that was a, such a physiological uh, shock to me. And and I years later bought an altitude tent, and and I did the 2019 Masters preparing, and you know we might talk about that, but but that was a game changer to train um, to sleep at altitude. So you were competing as much as possible, racing, having a lot of success, state titles, um, but one of the big ones you wanted was the Australian Masters Championship uh, road race. You wanted to go there and win, and it's the exact same story. You'd been there a few years, and you'd, same thing, gotten some seconds, thirds, fifths, and again, a goal in your mind, single-minded, you wanted to win this, Um, and this is one of my favorite stories of uh, just showing your mental resilience and determination, and uh, this race, I think it was 2014 when you finally won it um, and got yourself 26 years later, um, another Australian Masters champion, uh, Australian, another Australian champion jersey, um, another Australian championship title to your name. Uh, and that race, uh, I just remember you said before it, you said to us kids that no matter what, you were going to win it. Um, it was just this single-mindedness determination. And we were also invested because we were older now and we wanted to see you performing and competing again because we had heard how you were as professional in your younger days. And, um, I mean, you can tell the story of the finish, but it's, it's a pretty epic way to just um, – it was basically all grit just to make sure that you would win that. It's interesting because I've competed at, you know, five more, four more after that. Um, and, and this was at Buninyong 
So it had special significance because that's where the elite national road race is. And so this was at Ballarat 2014 and I was in great form and um, really hard race up Bunningyong. I don't know how many laps we did and it came down the normal circuit to the finish line at Bunningyong, which is where it is right now. And, and it's kind of downhill um, finish and tactically you need to, to really understand that finish. And I had gone and, and reconned it many times and understood um, – you know, if the wind is coming from here, you need to be sitting on this side of the wheel, et cetera, et cetera. But we came to the finish and there was, uh, I think it was four riders uh, fighting out for the win. And one of them was, I remember, Ag Geromondo, um, really good sprinter. And I thought, I don't know, I, I didn't get rid of them on the climb. Um, I could have blown this. Um, but, but I almost, because I'd said to myself that no matter what happens today, I'm going to give everything to make sure I win this. And so I could not have timed the sprint better and I've tried to teach the guys I coach, sprinting is not all about the guy with the best power. Um, there's three aspects to sprinting. There's the position first, where are you in the position for the sprint? The, the timing, when do you start your sprint? And then your effort, the power. So. There's so many examples of people giving the power, and even last Saturday's bunch ride, at the wrong time. They may have been pushing more power, but they did it at the wrong time. They were positioned wrong, and they timed it wrong. So I couldn't have been better positioned. I was behind um, uh, two of the guys who were leading it out, and Ag was behind me, which I didn't really like. <laughs> um, and then uh, timing the sprint, um, got that right, and then it was the effort. And we were side by side. And I thought, well... Who wants this more? And I remember getting cramp in my stomach in the sprint because I was straining so much for the power. And I think the photo shows me winning by a wheel. Um, but Ag was a better sprinter than I was. But I definitely got the position right, the timing, and I just was determined with the power. And, and so that was another example of fulfilling a, an ambition based on everything I'd known in that came into that last sprint, you know, understanding the scenario, and it's like a chess game, isn't it? You mm -hmm. know, you've got the race where you're trying to get rid of them on the, on the climb, it didn't happen, now I have to look for plan B. And, and they're examples that I try to, to tell the athletes that I'm coaching that you've got to have all these other opportunities and options up your sleeve if things don't pan out well. Um, but I've learned a lot from other people. Tim Jamison has taught me that um, about sprinting. It's not necessarily the most powerful guy that's going to win the sprint. It's the guy who's got the three things, the, the position in the bunch. If, if you start the sprint from 10th, you might end up fourth and you might have had the highest power of the whole sprint, mm. but you started too far back. So that's your position. The timing, if you start a sprint into a headwind 200 out, everybody's getting a free ride. You're actually the lead out man not the guy sprinting. So the timing's crucial. And then the effort is when you need it most, which is the power. That's why Tim keeps winning every sprint of his team. <laughs> <It is. laughs> every Saturday, you just you can't beat him. Uh, my favorite part of that story is that when you came home and told us and you, you explained that, that you just had your head down and you just were putting every single thing into the pedals to make sure you won. And then you looked at your power data after and you're a very light rider and so you don't push high watts um your watts per kilo is really high but just in terms of high wattage it's not as high and 
um, for that sprint, you pushed over a thousand watts, which was just a, I think it was a 10 second power record. Yeah, and I still haven't matched that power number for, to this day. That is the highest power I've ever pushed. Um, and, and I was quite shocked um, that I, I think the determination, no matter what it took, was the point. And then looking back saying, well, I can, I can push that if I'm, if I'm really. In that mode. Yeah. 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 And the will to win was, was what got me over the line for sure. And like you said, you won four more Australian Masters Championships after that, uh, basically four in a row maybe. Um, there were some gaps in there, missing some years, but um, that, that one always stands out as a really clear memory. And uh, to paint the picture of kind of what uh, ability you'd gotten yourself to, you know, you were really riding uh, as many variation of races as possible. And there was a specific race, uh, the Phillip Island Grand Prix, where you were, it was an open race with, you know, basically elite riders in there. Um, and you managed to get yourself a top 10 finish um, against some uh, gun open riders. And that really showed where you were at as a, as a late 40s, 50-year-old rider. That was a bit of a shock, actually, because it was 100 and something K around the Phillip Island circuit. You know, it's a, it's a really tough circuit. It's got all these little climbs out the back. And, and it was a huge field. So positioning was important and, uh, you know, making sure you're near the front third so that you're not going to get gapped. And so much about tactics was in that. And, of course, I was fit. but I try to explain to people that I coach as cyclists, the fittest person is never going to win every time. It's the fittest person, but the person who's got the best tactics. And I was really good at positioning myself in a field. And that day proved it because I was near the front, the brake went, I, I got in the brake and I basically hid at the back until that point came and I was able to be fresh enough to join the brake and it was a long way out. And it was, I think there were 10, 10 of us in the brake. And the expectation in the break is everybody contributes. And here I am with the elite riders of Australia and I'm sort of shaking my head going, I'll help you when I can. But, and everybody's cool with that. You know, I'm not going to feature in the finish here, boys. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, by the end of the ride, I end up 10th. But, you know, I was lucky to that, stay that with caliber. Them. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that, that was an example of, uh, it's not necessarily fitness alone it's it's your tactics and mm -hmm. knowing how to how to protect yourself and hide and knowing when to burn your match when you need it um and i was pinching myself that whole day i still remember that vividly saying far out look at the guys i'm riding with here um and i'm still here and the fitness kept me there but my tactics got me there and one of the last points to touch on which really just exemplifies this mindset you have of soaking up you as much information as possible, which which is what you've been doing since 1985, and that's um, so you won the uh, Australian Masters Championship um, when in 2014 for the first time, and you uh, won the Champion of Champions three years, three times. So that is basically at the at the at the championship. There's um, there's the road race, there's the crit, and there's the time trial, yep. and so you can become Australian champion each of those individually. But then the champion of champions is there's points allocated for each, and um, whoever has the best points across all three gets champion of champions. So you'd won that three times, but in winning the champion of champions, you'd never won the time trial. Come second, third, again, whatever. And um, once again, when that happens to you, we we get a recurring theme here that you get. <laughs> hell-bent on winning it and coming into uh, the 2018 Nationals it was or 2019, um, I can't remember the year, but you just said, I need to get this monkey off my back now and win the National Time Trial. You wanted to win Champion Champions again for sure, but you wanted to win the Australian Time Trial Championship. And it was interesting because I remember talking to you about it because uh, you were in the office and you were sort of saying, what are you going to do this year, Dad? 
And I said, well, do I just keep going back and repeating the same thing? And you were saying, well, why not? Why wouldn't you keep doing it when when you're enjoying it? And I said, I tell you what I aren't enjoying is not winning the time (laughs) trial. And I've come second. uh, Jim Tim Aaron's beat me by (laughs) (laughs) 0.01. In a time trial. How's that possible? Anyway, that happened a few times. Jim and I have been very similar. Just one of the guys who I've grown up riding with and uh, he's a fantastic guy and I couldn't be happier to lose to him. But I lost to him by under a second two or three times. Um, So there wasn't much between us. Anyway, I think I said to you, if I'm going to go back, I have to win the time trial um, and that's going to be my goal. And, And I want to be, you know, one of the few people to have won the road race criterium in time trial at the same championship. So I win the whole, all three. Clean sweep. Yeah. And so that was, I think, I think it was in Adelaide. Um, and, and I said, but I have to do a few things different because, because I'm doing something not right to not win this. Tactically, I'm winning the criterium and the road race because of my tactics and my fitness. But in the time trial, it's, it's fitness and my fitness is not good enough. And so I remember discussing it with you saying, this is what I have to do. I have to train uh, a lot better, a lot smarter for this event, and I have to do a whole lot of other things. And you were going like, what? I said, well, I know the value of altitude, and, and that was one of the key things that I, I thought if I could sleep at altitude um, and train properly, not at altitude, because they always say sleep high and train low, but if you can sleep high and train high, it's a double effect. Well, I couldn't train high because we live basically we're at 500 meters not 2000 yeah, meters that's right um so so i went and found myself an altitude meter tent and much to discuss with my wife um, <laughs> um used it for eight weeks and and uh and lost four kilo and uh, that was the other thing i felt that i was not at the right racing weight that i should have been you know and as a as a 50 plus you know, 57-year-old, 58, 60-year-old, whatever it was, it was a 60-year-old. Are those things important? Well, not really. But if I want to actually do this properly, that's my point. It doesn't matter how old you are. If you want to do something properly, do it properly. So, so the weight was a, you know, I had to do extra things. I had to concentrate on the right fuel, really good nutritious fuel, which will lose my weight and not eat the crappy stuff for just a period. Um, and remarkably, the weight just fell off me. I didn't do any, didn't do any harder training. I did more specific training to time trialing. But you know, the altitude, the concentration on um, the food and training more specifically for this event were the three things that you know that were the added things I needed to do because I was doing okay before, um, but but I needed to have a, a, a difference and and going to that event um i wasn't sure but i knew i'd also gone to get a bike fit um to to really get me in a professional optimal position on the bike that was going to allow me to be faster um and that took i reckon six weeks of me riding like a dog on the time trial bike and i this is a good lesson really because i rang the guy up and said I've been averaging 42 k's an hour in these 20-minute to 30-minute events, and I just competed on the weekend with my new position, and I busted my ass and I rode 38 k's an hour. I don't think I'd ever ridden under 40 k's an hour in my entire 
time trialing career and it was almost i was in shock i didn't i was trying i didn't know what had happened people said oh how come you didn't compete on the weekend and i said well you didn't go to page three of the results because that's where i was i was that far behind and i rang him and said what do we do about this he said you just keep training in that position and you trust the process and it was really good advice um that was march when i got that done the, the race was october you, you said you got six months and by the time I got to two or three weeks out from October, I was back riding faster than I was before I changed my bike position. So I got back half a kilometre an hour. I think I was back to, I think I did, I don't know, 42.8 or 43 k's an hour on race day. So, so but that took li- literally three months before I started riding back in the 40 k's an hour. So I'm always telling people to be patient and I had to really do that myself um, and trust the process. And I was going to give it time. And if, if it didn't start to turn around, then I would question it. But, but I couldn't question it without giving it a chance. And, and that's the thing I would tell people who, who are starting a new journey. You, you know, don't give it four weeks. You know, give it four months. Maybe give it, some people, give it four years and you'll get, get to your destination. And so you went and you clean swept it and uh, it probably capped off. Um you know, years of work in, um, in the master's category of self-experimentation, of trialing everything, uh, again, making mistakes and uh, putting it all together to put the best preparation in in a six-month plan uh, to get you that win. And uh, once again, very satisfying result to cap off a, um, a big 10-year or 12 or 15-year period. Yeah, and, and I, I do feel that that was the most rewarding uh, result out of all of my masters. And I put it in perspective, you know, there's hardly anybody in our age category anymore because people have given up racing. So it's, it's probably easier to compete in that age category as compared to a 35 to 40 or 40 to 45. So I understand that. Um, but the guys who go to those races, they think they're a chance. Um, so you are, you don't have the depth, but you have the same quality riders who you've been racing against for 10 years. So mm-hmm. it's the same guys. And whether they're 50 or now they're 60, um, it's pretty much the same guys. So, so that was very satisfying and it proved to me once again that you need to do the next step extra stuff to, to give yourself the opportunity. It may not happen. And it's not, as I said, you know, winning was a bonus, but, but you need to do something better than you've been doing before to get the next level result. And, and honestly, uh, winning the time trial set up the next two days because the road race was next and I was so confident and, and, and tried something in the road race that I'd, that I'd always wanted to do um, and attack on a downhill because uh, this is, it was similar Chris, to… Chris Froome style. It was similar to Port Wollong, uh, to Wollonga Climb and in, it was in Adelaide and the, the de- descent was really technical and the climb was parallel to Wollonga Hill which is like a 10 minute climb but it was about three or four K up the road. Um, so it was three laps of that. So the descent, the climb, flat bit, etc. Um, and just before the downhill, I attacked on a, a mini ap- uphill and got f- 15, 20 meters on the bunch. And two other guys came across and um, they were really good descenders too, which, um, which helped. And the three of us stayed away. And then I was able to ride the last hill away solo, which was so satisfying the way that I was able to do it because master's riding is really hard when you're a marked rider. Um, it's hard to get away because they just chase you down and sit behind you. So, 
So I'd experienced that a lot over the, the years. So it was really good to come up with a, a winning tactic that uh, was going to catch people by surprise. And no one would have thought you would attack on a downhill. Um, and then the criterion was like, I've won two. Um, I am not going to lay down here. I am going to go into this race with the mindset that I am determined to make it a clean sweep. And, and you know, it was a shocking day at Adelaide. It, it was raining. The course was dangerously slippery. Um, Victoria Park course, for those who know it, it's got the last corner. It's a really tight right-hander, and it was wet. Positioning was key. You had to be in the first three riders around that corner because it was literally 200 metres to the finish. If you were fifth or sixth, you were too far back because you were going around the corner so slow. And I'm telling this story because, again, it wasn't, it wasn't particularly about the strongest rider, although I was, or I think, the strongest rider anyway. But, but positioning, I, if I wasn't where I put myself, which was second around the corner, I don't think, if I tried to come from eighth and be arrogant, I wouldn't have won. Mm. It was all to do with tactics. Mm. Um, and that was rewarding as well. And finishing with the, the three. Yeah, and, and it was almost like that's a chapter finished. Um, and although I still love riding Masters National Championships, but I'm certainly not preparing myself. I'm more preparing others. I'll just quickly show for the video as well. This is actually one of my favorite uh, frames. I'll just quickly grab it. But we've got a frame from that uh, national title and it's just, um, I'll show it on video here. And it's just uh, the end of the road race and uh, you can see behind, it's, I don't know how far it is to that corner, but um, you're just well clear, you know, and it's very satisfying. You're up uh, celebrating the win and it's got Jared only four times Australian Masters Champion of Champions. And yeah, like you said, just capped off a really... Um, great uh, decade plus of campaigning for these races and one we didn't mention was the world masters title where you got uh, second or third i think and that was another one that you um really um i say second or third flippantly because to you i know if it's not first it doesn't matter but to everyone else you know, second or third of the world masters um and that's a whole other story that is another frustrating one for you but it was again one that you really put your head down and committed to and felt like you were strong enough to win um, yeah, and look, it, it, it should be mentioned, you know, I didn't get the result there um, in the time trial on the road race through various circumstances, which is probably don't, don't have time to go through, but, but that may be more determined to, to, to reach for goals. Um, it's not all, you're not always going to get the goal, not always going to get the result. Um, it is important to, to strive for it, but, you know, we've, we've highlighted specific things over a period of time, but the, in between, there were other events where I didn't get the mm -hmm. goal. I didn't reach the result I wanted. Um, and so don't feel like you're hearing someone who just wins everything. It's not the case. For every win, there's 70 seconds. And I always shake my head and laugh a bit when I look at Sagan, Peter Sagan. He's had equally amount of seconds that he has had first, and he's won 100 and something races, and he's got second 100 and something something time so no one remembers that they're just remembering winning a lot of stuff you know three-time world champion and but he's you know it's not always going to end the right way and 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 that's okay too it's it's how you deal with that um and what that does to your mindset and for me that's like a red rag oh, i'm not going to let that happen again um i'm going to do everything i can which is next level to make sure i can achieve what i wanted to achieve and in all of that, you always had a feeling that you were going to go back into full-time coaching. You just didn't know exactly when it would be. Um, but throughout this period, I think it was kind of decided for you when P 
people were noticing your dominance and uh, people started to really ask for your help. Um, and again, once you um, started training uh, properly for cycling, uh, you had a you quickly formed a group around you that you were helping. You were getting help from other people as well as you started to coach friends around you, teammates around you, uh, other athletes would come and ask for help. Um, and, you know, you tell the story, you were a full-time painter. Uh, it was your full-time job, obviously. Um, but you were getting interrupted at work to answer calls about coaching. That's the point it was getting to. It was funny uh, hearing the Joe Friel story about his uh, starting a bike shop and, sorry, starting a running shop in Boulder. And, and uh, he had more people coming in asking him about training than buying running shoes. Um, and that's kind of, you know, I was, I didn't want to go back to teaching. I, I wanted to, um, get a, a career that paid better than teaching because I had four children and we wanted to put you through some, some good school. So I needed a better job and, um, we'd worked our way, my brother and I had worked our way with our dad, um, going through uni, uh, helping dad in his painting business. And so we did that till we were, you know, 18, 19, 20, 21. And uh, I vowed that I'd never paint again uh, once I'd qualified as a teacher. But here I am back, back painting um, and doing really well in our, in our own business. And, uh, and I was helping that many people. I was getting all the calls during work hours and it was really affecting um, my painting. Um, in the middle of painting a wall, I'd have to stop. and <laughs> I didn't have to stop, but I wanted to stop and answer a call. Someone wanted to talk about you know, their training. Um, and it was fun and the, the painting wasn't fun, um, but it was the means to an end. You have to, you have to earn money and you have to work. Um, but, but certainly, uh, my passion was still helping people and I was helping people, you know, everywhere I could turn, I was, I would gladly, gladly write programs for people and, and discuss their progress and, um, and it just became too much in the end and I, something I had to give. It was at this point that Travelo was born and uh, we will break down the name because for those that don't know, Travelo is uh, quite simply uh, the tri part is triathlon and velo is the Italian word for bike or cycling. Yep. Um, so that's what Travelo actually is. Uh, it's funny that if I say the name to anyone in the industry, they, they get it straight away. If I try and, try and give my email to um, someone <laughs> that needs my email for some reason, they, they can never understand what Travelo is and they, it's... Travello or double L or something like that, but yeah, um, it's basically just trying to say that we we help you know anybody wants to swim, ride, and run and 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 ride it. Um, so that that that's where it was. It's a great name. And at this point, we want to give a quick shout out to Darren Rutherford from Giant. Uh, we've actually had him on the podcast, so you can listen to the episode with him. But he was instrumental in helping bring Travelo to life. Uh, Giant have been our long-term sponsor here at Travelo and they've absolutely backed you, Dad, and Darren's backed you completely and Travelo into this wonderfully big, close-knit, uh, epic family that it is now. And uh, yeah, throughout this process of you, um, you know, really trying to get to the best level yourself as a Masters athlete, uh, throughout this, Travelo was, was born as the um, full-time coaching side of things and it's uh, just grown into this, uh, yeah, this wonderful thing it is now. Yeah, and look, Frank, my brother, um, who I was partnership with in the, in the painting business, just said, look, you, if you want to pursue your coaching career, yeah, stop painting. It, let's, let's start your coaching career properly. Think of a, a, a coaching business name, um, clothing, um, the Celtic business painting will back 
your coaching until until you, you can earn enough. Charge people to be coached now. Don't do it for free anymore. Make it a proper business. And without that, again, people around you to support you with your dreams, it's very difficult. Um, but but what an opportunity for my brother to to sort of say, look, go for it. Let's see see where it takes you. That's your passion. Um, and you know, Darren Rutherford from Giant was instrumental in you know. I remember sitting down saying, "What are we going to call our, our coaching business?" And we came up with some ridiculous names. And and he was instrumental in the name. And what, what are we going to look like? How are we going to how are we going to be identified? Um, what's a safe color? Um, and I was I was always in love with the Belgium, the German colors, the National Road colors, and they stood out. And and they've they don't. I mean, they, they last the test of time. You know, they don't, they don't get old. Some brands look good and then all of a sudden it looks old and tired. And, um, you know, the Belgium kit's been there since the, I don't know, the 30s. And the German kit's the same, white with the black and the, and the, uh, the orange or the yellow. Yep. The Belgians are blue with the black and the, you know. And you, you identify because it, it stands out and it's forever. And I was talking to someone the other day, look, the, the, G, the Great Britain kit, like it just keeps changing, mm. you know. The Australian kit is iconic. Mm. The white with the green and gold bands, mm. it's iconic. I love the Australian national kit, and getting a national jersey as a masters rider, it's it's kind of not exactly the same, but it's close enough. And I'm so proud of that that jersey because uh, I love the look of it, mm-hmm. and I wanted that to happen with Trivello's kit. Yeah. And so you know, I was fumbling around with this, and Darren Darren and I came up with you know not only the, the name but the kit yeah. and. And it's a white kit, which is so safe at night and in the early mornings when we're training. I didn't want dark. And it stands out so much. You can see people coming the other direction in the kit. It's, 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 I'm really proud of the kit, actually. We're so proud of the kit and we just love seeing it out there. And I think this is the, the point that we want to talk about with Traveller now is that it started, you know, it's for us, it's a, it's a family business. You know, the, the Donnelly family is, is just is what Trivello is and what it's come from. And um, especially it wouldn't have started without, you know, you and Frank. And that's why we want to mention you, Frank and Darren at the start of it. Um, and, you know, Trivello now has evolved into this uh, thing where um, it's, you know, full time is you, me, brother Liam. Uh, Liam's wife works in the business. Shauna, our cousin who um, has been on the podcast before, works in the business. So it's really just, a, it's a family business now that uh, has grown into this, a uh, massive thing that uh, probably you always wanted, but didn't quite expect it to turn out this way. Um, and I mean, even mum as well, you know, we, we take tours to Belgium and mum is so instrumental in um, making that happen. And she won't like us talking about that because every time we do a tour, she says, I'm not, I'm not being the swan year again. I'm not um, <laughs> providing everything for everyone, but she does such a great job every time that she, she ends up continuing to do it. But um, that's the real family theme of you know, how, how Travelo is. And, uh, not just from us as a family that run it, but uh, that extends to the theme of what Trivello is for our athletes and our Trivello clients and athletes are family. And anyone that's involved in Trivello knows that. And um, you can't describe the um, how close-knit the family feels, you know, when you go for a ride and uh, the amount of close friendships that have now formed within the Trivello community. There's groups of people that uh, are now considering each other as, as best friends and you would now consider a lot of athletes as extremely close friends of yours personally, uh, regardless of the coach-athlete relationship, and that's just what Traveller has been has grown into. Yeah, there's no doubt you've covered a lot of topics there, and um, you know some of my 
people I spend my social time with. Um, uh, not only am I their coach, but I'm I'm their friend. And um, you know, looking around Australia, I've got got people who I've actually never met personally yet. I have a relationship with um, that's very deep. Um, the amount of knowledge I need to know about what's happening in your personal life to enable you to be a better athlete that you're asking me to help you with is you have to share a lot of personal private stuff between the coach and the athlete and and so you know that's quite important to have that uh special bond that um and and it's deep and it's the analogy is like they're all my children which sounds a little bit strange but that's how i look at it you know if i want my kids to succeed i want my athletes to succeed and i don't mean win i just mean be better versions when they come to us they they get the joy and the happiness first and foremost from what they're doing the process of the training the goal setting and if you haven't understood how important <laughs> goal setting is from the last period of time that we've been talking about it it is crucial to understand that if you are going to sit there and make a statement about what your goals are you have to be committed to the process and if don't make the don't make this the goal if you're not committed and and I have to be blunt to say halfway through that journey you've you've talked the talk but you're not walking the walk you're not going to get the goal you want to achieve you're going to fall short you need to rethink um and most people go you're right um it's it's not what I thought I was able to do so so I'm quite I'm quite blunt sometimes with it's black and white, even though I really want to be on an emotional journey with people, um, but I, I don't want to give people a false sense of where they're at, um, and I don't want them to get on race day and be disappointed. Um, I want them to be clear about what their potential is, and that's what planning is for, for a lot of the athletes. Uh, and so um, I, I just think the journey and the personal personalness of it is based around my family. Um, how am I going to treat my family? I'm going to, and everybody could ask themselves, you know, you know, it's a client. But no, don't think of it as a client. Think of it as a, someone that you have a personal relationship with and, and you just want them to be better. Um, and the joy I get is equal to the joy I've experienced myself. And there's been some occasions, I know at the national titles, where I've been in tears with, um, example would be i've got so many times i've been in tears with a victory from someone i've coached i've just given them the, the big embrace the hug and i can't speak mm. um and you know i could rattle off so many times that that's happened um just like i do when you guys have done well you know when you when you're little um that's the feeling i get and and i love it i i could not be happier in my job knowing and it's not just about the victory. Mm. I'm sure they've won the, the national title. And I talk about Joe Spano is, is my shining light, you know, but I've got many Joe Spanos. Um, and I'm just as happy as someone who's, who's come from the back of the pack in a triathlon and is now the middle of the pack and has done a PB by 15 minutes. The embrace is the same. Mm -hmm. um, um, so, so I think as long as, as long as that passion is still there and I feel like, each one of my children are important to me. Um, I'm so determined to to keep growing this business to to make 
make it so that people want to be long and, and they want to enjoy the uh, you know what we what we offer and and the journey is the key the 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 destination is is what the journey is all about you know you're going to get to the destination eventually um, but the journey's the 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 thing that um, that happens every day and um, and that's where the magic happens I suppose um, um, but the fun at the end uh, when you get to the destination is is well worth it and you look back and you go you're really satisfied with with uh, with how it, how it all evolved and and dad used to say you get what you deserve and I just thought what does that mean get what you deserve well, if you if you don't do any training, you deserve to get a poor result. Mm. If you train as well as you possibly can, the d- result you got, you deserved. Um, and that's what it means. It means you know, you're in charge of what you deserve um, by your actions, by everything you do every day will determine what you deserve at the end. There will be times where there's bad luck, where you get a mechanical or, you know, Something, something unexpected happens, but the majority of the time, you know, however you've gone about the process and the journey, you'll get the result that you want. Um, and you've got to be a believer in that, and I am a believer in that. And as, and as I said earlier, for every success that I've had, there's been lots of unsuccessful um, um, programs that I've done for myself. Um, but I can identify, you know, the reasons why I didn't get the result that I deserved. It could be. Um, just someone's better than you on the day. Someone's prepared better than you, um, and you've got to accept that as well. Um, but you know, as long as you're happy in the in the in the journey, which is the key thing, I think. Um, but that that family side of it, that I I just I want to make sure that everybody feels that they're part of part of that um, that togetherness. And you know, I've got examples of people becoming really close friends just because of the link of uh, we've got group down at the Mornington Peninsula who are all on WhatsApp together and they all meet and, and they join join together for their bunch ride and then they come up to town and turn around when they see our bunch coming towards them. Um, you know, they've got their own little community there and there's another community in South Australia and one in Queensland and, you know, people in New Zealand and we've just got little groups everywhere growing. Um, we started off with a, uh, quite a big contingent in Perth um, in the early days when we first started. Um, you know, one guy joined and, and all of a sudden five of his mates joined because he felt like he was part of something and his performances were improving every time he raced. And all of his mates are going, I want to be part of that because I see what you're doing. You're getting better. And I don't want to be part of it. And, and he was loving, you know, and I, the relationship I had with him was, was incredible <laughs> um, for a, a long period of time. Yeah, I mean that's a great summary. I think um, what you spoke about. Then we we personally don't like using the words uh, clients or you know business here, you know, because we we want to see it as a Trivelo family and our athletes are family, and um, obviously it's a business, but we don't want to see it that way. We want to see it as as it's it's passion and it's um, what we love doing, and uh, it's why we love doing the podcast and why we love releasing this information and, and talking about this stuff nonstop. And um, we would. You know, we discuss race tactics, we discuss triathlons, we discuss all the best cycling races on the podcast, but we would do that anyway. So, <laughs> we just press record basically. Um, but yeah, it is all those little things that um, like 
when you're riding on the street and you see a, a traveler rider, you, you yell out, you know, and it's such a standout kid. And I can't tell you the amount of times I've just been running and then a bike rider will fly past me and yell out or someone will yell out. I don't even see them, but they recognize the Travelo singlet when running. Um, at events, it's always great to see fellow Travelo uh, athletes and you cheer each other on. Uh, even if you don't know who's cheering you on in the race, you know it's someone to do with Travelo. Um, and oh, yeah, talking about both the local Melbourne scene and the fact that we're all online, you know, we've been all online for a long time, but uh, we started in Melbourne and, um, you know, there's a bigger bunch here that wear the Traveller jersey with pride and anyone that gets it, you do really wear it with pride and uh, Nick Granger, who is one of our long, longest serving uh, Traveller athletes, he recently did a summary kind of, he's, he's finished up with Traveller, he's um, 70 now and he's stopped uh, enjoying it competitively, which is exactly the principle you're talking about. So he's just going to enjoy recreationally riding. Uh, and he gave a bit of a summary saying that, um, yeah, everyone that puts on the jersey wears it with pride. And uh, that's such an amazing thing for it to be our thing. You know, you're talking about the same kind of concept for an Australian jersey. And um, yeah, I think it's kind of surreal to when you see um, a big bunch in Melbourne, sometimes 30 plus uh, riders, sometimes 40, all wearing Trivello. It's quite a, a quite a surreal site. Um, but we've worked really hard to extend this to the online community. You know, we've got our online clients that we coach every Monday on Zoom uh, and you get to chat with them on there and get to know them. And uh, we have our Facebook groups where um, everyone shares um, a whole range of information, inspirational things, funny things. We have our events, you know, we've got training camps. We've got a training camp coming up next week, um, which people are attending and... Uh, I think it comes down to the why behind uh, why you do everything you personally. And I think that's fair to say that you moved on from being a professional athlete uh, and even a, a professional master's athlete. Um, and you, your dream now is uh, for other people. It's gold medals or podium finishes for other people. It's conal qualifications for other people. And it's uh, or just simple improving and PBs for your athletes. And I think you've definitely taken that correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you've taken that ruthless competitiveness and that win at all costs and be the best mentality and everything you've achieved and you've transitioned that now into, I want to do that by being the best coach. You know, I tried to be the best athlete I could and now you want to be the best coach you can and uh, everything you experimented on yourself as a master's athlete plus all your experience as a professional has led, led you to this stage and um, is it fair to say that you get, like you said, just a kick out of all, all these results as you did as your own personal results? Uh, I think you've summarised that spot on. That my my next goal is to be so proud of every single athlete that I'm coaching because they've achieved what they set out to when they contacted us, and and uh, that's my my full determination is is what is it going to take to get you the result you want? And I've got some outlandish goals, and I've got some goals that, that doesn't have, sound like you. <laughs> they're very achievable. And, and we just have to understand that each person's in charge of their own destiny. Um, you, you can pick the highest goal that's, that's possible. have got guys who still want to win Masters Road titles. I've got guys who just want to go around the Grand Fondo 10 minutes quicker than they did. I've got guys who just want to be healthy and fit so they can be a better dad or a better mum. You know, but you need to have goals. And... and and my job is to make sure that everybody now is achieving those goals. My my career as an athlete, I've 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 achieved what I wanted to achieve. There's there's probably a couple of little things that I I want to do, which I'll tick away in the background to keep myself motivated to get myself out of bed. Um, I love the team's time trial at the nationals. I think that's a fantastic concept. You're in a team environment. You're working together. You're helping others. 
I can physically help people in my team to to us to, to get a national jersey. I think that's that's great. Again, it's me really hell bent on uh, you know, and I'm encouraging as many people to join this event as possible. Um, and you know, to see the triathletes who are you know now getting to understand that they can run in a triathlon, they don't have to walk um, if they do it properly, and and they will get the results they want if they if they persevere with the coaching structure that we're giving them. Um, so. So that's what that's what my determination is from this point on is to that's my goals is to you know it's okay being an athlete because you're in charge of your own destiny but now as a coach I'm in charge of my children um, who I, I I definitely want to see them reach the potential that they're they're wanting to and they've contacted us for um, and and that's a fun journey uh, because there's so many personalities um, so many ways people do things differently that I've got to be across and and I've got to be flexible, and, and it's a challenge for me um, because my hard, fast, rigid way that I coach myself doesn't work for, for everybody. For other people, it works. For some, it doesn't. So I've got to find what works for people, and that's a challenge in itself. And, and you know, rather than experimenting on myself, I'm probably experimenting on you a bit. Um, and, you know, we already, we've already gone down that track in the last 18 months and, and saw how things can improve and you've proven how quickly you've developed as a cyclist and you don't probably don't want to talk about that too much but but you know your watts have gone from 278 to 358 and you know just by us experimenting and that's you weren't a bad cyclist to start with and that's outstanding improvement and you know your running times have come down from just doing the things that i told you about you know Going back to the hills, going back to Sherbrooke. You, you've gone back to Sherbrooke, the place you grew up running, and all of a sudden your running times are coming down again without you doing any hard intervals. So these are all examples of, of us experimenting. And, and, you know, no one out there has, the, has the, the, the almanac, the answers to every question. Every coach out there is learning. And if they think that they're not, then they've got it wrong. You have to keep exploring and learning and understanding. And we've interviewed a lot of good people, um, a lot of coaches, a lot of Olympic champion coaches, um, and they all say the same thing. You've got to keep learning uh, to give your athletes the best possible sessions that you think will get them. And not every session works the same for everybody. So they're the things I have to um, think about now um, as a coach, and, and it's a, it's, I'm excited about it because... It is so good to see people get the results. And that phone call I get post-race in a, as a triathlete for someone who's you know trying to break five hours for the half, half Ironman and they've done a 4.52 or a 4.59 and 59 seconds, it's a great phone call. It's, you know, it's an emotional call. Um, and there's just countless examples of that. Um, you know, a girl, Emma in New Zealand, is a 1.58 half marathon and then she comes out and runs a 1.51. You just you can't even speak. It's it's like, wow, you know. How did she do it? Four sessions a week, mm. you know, all hills, some 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 harder hills, some easier hills. Um, obviously, there's other recovery runs, but, but there are examples of of knowing that you know there's certain things that are going to get you the right results, and and it's not because we've read it in a book. It's because we've actually tried it on ourselves, and and the the theory you know in the book is is a theory and and it's only a theory until it 
becomes, you know, in practice becomes effective and it, has, it gets a result. And I'm always tweaking things. Um, you know, I'm never going to say this is the this is the final um, program uh, program forever, and we just follow that. It's oh, all right. We should should have a have a little go at doing this now. Um, and and that's that that's a challenge that I'm absolutely up for, and spend most of my time uh, reading research articles and looking for things that have been successful. Just like when I became successful as a triathlete. I had that many people contact me wanting me to help them. Why? Because I had been successful. Not because of me, but because of what I'd, what I'd done. And the same thing happened when I was a master's rider. I had all these master's cyclists contact me when I started to win again. How did you do that? What sessions are you doing? Because people want to associate with success. Um, so, so, you know, there's a fair responsibility on our hands to, to make sure that um, we're delivering that. But, you know, that's what I'm. I'm, you know, spending all my time, you know, and, and it's the most enjoyable period, I think, uh, of, of my career, I think, as a, as a human being is now doing something that I absolutely love and can't wait to get up and it's no issue for me to spend and you're holding me back from spending so much time in front of the computer, um, you know, analysing and, and writing, you know, new programs and, and stuff. So, as as boring as that sounds to some other people, that's what inspires me, and um, and uh, can't wait, can't wait for the next ten years to see um, how it develops and where we go to, and um, uh, yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to seeing success stories, you know, on a daily basis from everybody we're coaching. That's music to any Travello athlete's ears because we should understand if you don't understand by the last two uh, episodes part one and part two that once you set your mind on something and a goal then that you achieve it so if that's your goal with coaching then any athlete should be pretty excited um and yeah where it's 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 incredible where traveler is now as i said a few times it's quite surreal you know we're, we're worldwide we coach athletes in australia new zealand the uk the us canada hong kong thailand Singapore, even the Caribbean, South America, uh, it's incredible how far we're starting to reach. And even this podcast now, you know, we, we started putting it out just to our athletes and it was, you know, getting 50 listen, listens per episode and then we put it out, you know, publicly and now it's getting thousands of listens per episode, which is super exciting. So, I want to finish with some gratitudes again, uh, you know, because this is in celebration for um, episode 100 and we hope you have enjoyed this story of Jared Donnelly and the story of Travello coaching. So, I would, firstly, I'm grateful for you, the listener, uh, for listening and being on, us, on this journey with us. Uh, we really appreciate it and we bring it to you because we have had such great feedback. Um, and our Travello, uh, another gratitude is to our Travello athletes that are listening. Uh, you've really made Travello and the Travello community and the Travello family what it is and it's such a strong sense of community and family and that's what we absolutely love. And once again, Dad, I want to uh, say thank you for sharing your story uh, across two episodes. Um, I know the first one was quite traumatic, but <laughs> I hope that everyone now sees the professionalism, uh, the ruthlessness, and the attention to detail that you had as an athlete and how that contributed to your success and how you've applied that same level, plus the greatest level of personal care I've ever seen in a coach to your athletes. Um, and I think that is truly what has made Travello successful so far. And I can't wait and we can't wait to write the rest of the Travello journey in history from here on. So, uh, yeah, on that note, thank you very much for listening. Uh, we have really enjoyed, I personally have enjoyed bringing this story to you. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, please let us know. Leave a comment on YouTube 
Uh, leave a comment on Instagram, on your podcasting app, leave a review. It would help us and we love hearing when you enjoy an episode specifically. Also, uh, always share on Instagram, share our posts on your story. We'd love to see who is listening to the episode, where you're listening from um, and how you're enjoying it. And Dad, that's, that's a wrap for this episode. Thanks, George. I've really enjoyed it. And the last thing I want to say is um, I am absolutely grateful for the people who've entrusted my <coughs> I'm not getting emotional here. I've just got something stuck in my throat. <laughs> um, I'm so grateful for the people who trust me, the people I'm coaching, that they know that I've got their best interests at heart. And, and I love the journey and the relationship I have with the people we're coaching. And, and it, it always amazes me that how we end up with like-minded people. Um, I'm astounded, but I shouldn't be because you should surround yourself with people who think the same way as you. And, and that's what we've attracted. And the people in our group, they all think the same. And, and it's no coincidence that they all get on famously with each other because they're all on the same journey. And so I'm really grateful for the people that I've met and, and the way they trust that they know I've got their best interests uh, at the forefront of my my coaching. So, yeah, very grateful. That's it for this episode. Thank you very much for listening to our 100th episode special. Uh, we've got some absolutely brilliant guests to finish off the year. Uh, some of the best guests we've had on the podcast that we just could not wait to chat to and we, we can't wait to bring to you. So, that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.